Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast, where we catch up with Lauren Orme, director of Creepy Pasta Salad, David Hutchinson, creator of Boy and Dragon, as well as John Walsh and Connor Heaney of the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation. Let's do it! Ben Mitchell, joined by Steve Henderson. Hello, Steve. Hello, Ben. I I would I would prefer you address me by my full title, which is Scooby Doo expert Steve Henderson. I had thought that was a given. <laughs> People just you know add that in their brains, but uh, yes, in future I shall know. Good, good. I don't know if you saw. I put something on Facebook and Twitter about uh, my bizarre journey through. The, the inner workings of BBC Radio earlier on in the week, uh, which was very entertaining, where I, I had to uh, affect the position of a Scooby-Doo expert, which I, <laughs> you know, when you look at your contract, there's nothing in it about being a Scooby-Doo expert. But I obviously work for a university, and the university decided that they needed an expert, given it was the 50th birthday of Scooby-Doo. Uh, and so I was up at five in the morning to drive to Media City... <laughs> sit in a booth all morning to talk to every BBC radio station about Scooby-Doo. Was that like just every BBC station up and down the country? Yeah, it was like, here's BBC Cumbria, BBC Grimethorpe, BBC, you know, all these like places you've never heard of. Can they not just record like one and then, yeah. and then just kind of, because I know like in the States they have like radio like packages where they have like the set of like answers or insights, and then the DJ for that like local territory will add in there and oh yes, that's interesting. Tell us more about Scrappy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tell us more about Scrappy is something that I heard an awful lot, far too much about last week, Ben. Seriously, the every single every single person that might as well have had a pre-record asked me about my opinion on Scrappy Do. I'm a 35 year old man. So where do you stand on Scrappy-Doo? On his face. Uh, on <laughs> Leave him alone. He's lovely. I can't, if I'm brutally honest, I don't think I ever had a hard stance on that particular issue. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> oh, are, they, are, they, are these respective insights available on the various uh, BBC iPlayers? I hope to God not. <laughs> okay. You know, long story short, I'm fine, Ben. How's you? Uh, yeah, good. I haven't been showcasing any Scooby-Doo expertise of late. <laughs> that, that's, uh, that's for sure. Uh, I've actually been luxuriating and pampering myself. Um, we just came back from our anniversary, so I kind of turned off real life for a few days. And uh, We being uh, you and your wife, not me and, just for the listeners' sake, not me and you. Don't, don't wreck the mystery. <laughs> <laughs> There's got to be people out there who are chipping us and standing us or whatever the f*** they call the things they do. <laughs> the tension is ruined. <laughs> so how uh, was it? Would you go anywhere nice? Did you have a did you have a good time? Yeah, it was very good. And uh, unfortunately came back today to discover the world is still going to shit. Mm-hmm. Oh, speaking of, of politics and stuff like that, because that's going to get people salivating. Uh, actually, maybe I'll save it for later on. There's some grousing I have to do as regards animation and a certain uh, popular animated TV show. But let's not start off with me yelling and screaming into the microphone. Let's build to that for a change. 
Let's take a run up. <clears throat> What's going on in the old animation world that's worth uh, having a natter about before we talk to our guests? Well, uh, there's been a big survey released, which is good. Uh, we all love a survey, don't we? D- yeah, I'm sure. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Every YouTube video, I'm like, I hope they ask me to do a survey. <laughs> I love filling in questions. Everybody gets a three. Uh, the <laughs> the uh, Animation UK or the UK Screen Alliance, uh, in partnership with Animation UK, have released... Uh, inclusion and diversity in the UK, a VF animation and post-production survey, which sounds really boring the way I pronounce it, but it's very interesting, actually, because it kind of gives us a view as to what the industry looks like based on, obviously, uh, a survey, which, you know, some people have problems with surveys, uh, given that they're just a sampling of uh, a select amount of people, but, you know, we're not going to go into that. Uh, Yeah, so we have a... A slight, uh, a dimly lit view as to what the animation industry looks like, which is quite surprising, I might say, you know, numbers wise. Well, that's certainly the sort of first impression. I think the main thing you're, you're probably referring to is the element of gender parity that perhaps people weren't expecting. Yeah. I think there's still this kind of narrative that women are a very kind of marginalized group within animation as well as um you know ethnic minorities and various other social groupings to be brutally honest that's still sort of the case Mm. this is a very gilded lily we're being handed i think with the results of this survey what was your sort of general takeaway of this I'm I'm with you. It's nice to see, you know, uh, the the headline being that we've got gender parity in the animation industry, although there is work still to be done in the VFX industry, that we have gender parity, which is interesting to know that there are people sat in chairs doing work. (laughs) Mm. Uh, However, when we think about what's being produced and at what level people are actually working on these things... I I still think there's a lot of work to do. I don't think we hear enough. Uh, we don't get enough women directors. We don't get enough women uh, people who have their opportunity to have their stories told. We don't get enough of that, certainly through uh, BAME either. Uh, and, I mean, it's very easy to, to take. People can take surveys such as this one uh, and use it as a kind of, yep, job done. That's fine. Uh, but... In many respects, we're still a long way from, uh, and still quite sheltered. You're still a, a long way from there being true inclusion, true diversity within our animation industry from the point of view of output. There's very little in terms of you know uh, shows or uh, series or um, short films. Perhaps uh, short films is a little bit better, but feature films, are very, you know, being actually uh produced and uh creatively led by women hmm. doesn't help also that the general public or certainly the element of the general public that uh, feels like its voice needs to be heard the most feels affronted when women get a f-ing crack at it yes yes <laughs> like the, the the nerve of these women to come and revamp She-Ra. <laughs> it's f***ing She-Ra. Like, if anything. But sort of interesting, I'm looking at the kind of priorities for action. It's kind of interesting to see there's sort of... 
I mean, again, that's just like how accurate is this, but areas where I, I guess you don't really give it that much thought otherwise, but there are areas where you're like, oh, okay, well, that's kind of encouraging when you see the sort of BAME representation sort of across the board is getting there. But then you look at BAME and senior management and it's just all red, yes. <laughs> like highest priority for action whatsoever. Mm. That's, you know, it's a bit of a cold slap in the face. You know, I mean, the, you know, LGBT representation and inclusion, that seems to be getting there mm -hmm. in a sort of better place. Um, and that's also, I think, starting to be reflected in the content, which, again, to the chagrin of people who it's no concern of. I mean, I think that ultimately, whether or not the accuracy of this kind of report, I'm sure, could be contested, or whoever put it together would have, you know, their arguments for why it's a solid study. And, I, you know, we have people who um, uh, are interested in doing some stuff for us, sort of maybe going into this a little bit more. Uh, so keep your eye on the site uh, for that in the near future. I think what it kind of represents as a positive is that at least there's a, a sort of level of interest in what might need to be implemented, whether or not it's like 100% a fair reflection. At least we're kind of making the steps toward and actually doing something. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's I think it's great. I mean, as a start, you know, we've you know, there's now a benchmark to, to move on from, you know, it's what, what, what do we need to improve on? How can we improve upon it? Uh, but, you know, survey or none, the, the thing that isn't captured by this survey is, is the, uh, the, the way that we, uh, put forward those stories, the way that we put forward those voices, uh, and the way that we ensure that the people that are in those managerial positions are people that can, uh, act as a you know a, a conduit and, and and allow those stories to come forward i also wonder as well cause it's uh, it says that you know uh 71 of uk-based workers say they come from outside of london which is great uh however the <laughs> the numbers are a little bit weird because it says that only three percent come from the northwest and the north i've read another survey that says there's at least 200 animation vfx post-production uh, companies in manchester alone whereas 14 percent come from uh, the southwest 23 come from the southeast so i find it really odd the way that you know so maybe there's email inboxes up and down manchester where people have gone oh this survey i forgot um but uh yeah it's uh, it's it's quite an odd one but it's going to be interesting uh, to see where this goes in future Something to keep an eye on. It's the kind of thing that, in terms of representation, kind of wealth of, uh, I think, ethnicities and backgrounds are represented in education, in my experience. Of course, I've only, you know, studied at two universities and I've only taught at a handful. But yeah, sort of, when I really kind of think back at it, that diversity hasn't really translated to the actual workplaces I've, you know, been at. Uh, it's different, like right now, but yeah, in the past certainly it's been a pretty, um, it's been a pretty Caucasian sausage fest. I, I, by and large, I would agree with you. It's very interesting to see who is coming through universities and what is happening afterwards. Now, it's not fair to say that every single person on an animation course is going to end up working in the animation industry. 
I mean, people who were on my course ended up working for the police and all types of silly things. Mm. Uh, police are silly, sorry. Uh, <laughs> but um, it, it's, it would be very interesting for those that have specifically said, I want to go out and work in the animation industry. How many, how, who gets out, who gets in there? You know, is it... Is it key personal skills that stopping them from getting there? Is it, and, and it goes for everyone, um, mm. or is it something intrinsic in the way that we hire? Is it something because they 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 often say you hire in your own image, you know? I mean, another element. If I think back to the student body that I was a part of, let's say for example, all of the students from South Asia didn't stay in England. It was kind of always their plan to move back and i would say a pretty high percentage of them ended up working Mm. from you know the degree to which i sort of followed them on social media afterwards by and large people from europe seem to want to stay in england more but i mean that may be a component of it as well like people are coming to a country to study and then deciding to return once those studies are done something to bear in mind yeah so there you go that's the uh, that's the animation industry then well, I think that's covered it all. <laughs> yeah, we're done. <laughs> uh, for more news, visit squiggly.com. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, Encounters is just around the corner. It's literally this coming week. You can visit the uh, website encounters.film, I believe it is these days, for the full program and stuff. Uh, we've talked a little bit about what to expect elsewhere. I know the Depict shortlist is already online. That's the uh, strand of the competition where you can watch the films online. They're the micro shorts that are a minute and a half long or under. That might be something you can whet your appetite with before the festival, if indeed you're planning to come. I think a big chunk of the Squiggly team are going to be in and about for that. Mm. So that'll be fun. And our first guest of this episode uh, has a film in the competition is very nice to see. Uh, it's a film I had been looking forward to seeing for a while. It had been marinating for several years. And I really kind of had no idea what to expect from it. I just kind of knew it vaguely as Lauren's film that she was talking about, <laughs> you know, working on forever. And the thing is, like, 90% of the people you, you know when you work in animation are working on a film in the background. Uh, it turns out hers was a real one with real funding and everything. And um, <laughs> it's a fine film. Uh, and I'm very glad that it got into encounters. Did you manage to catch this film yet? Yeah. Uh, uh, Creepy Pasta Salad, uh, which is an intriguing title, if uh, if nothing else. But it is a whole lot more than that. Uh, I've seen it. I really enjoyed it. The synopsis is a werewolf with an anxiety disorder, a ghost with low self-confidence and a lonely witch muddle through their everyday lives in this apocalyptic animation. So yeah, it's a very uh, Welsh film. I mean, Lauren lives in Wales now. I think she you know, has a real love for the city, and she's really kind of imbued the film with uh, lots of wonderful observational dialogue and character interactions to kind of expand on the sort of festival synopsis. It's one of these films, and it's a, it's a particular type of narrative device i suppose that i'm i'm very fond of where you have several characters and you're kind of following their personal stories and it's kind of how you know they lead these seemingly separate lives but ultimately the narratives become more and more intertwined and that's something you see quite often with like semi-abstract works this one is very much about you know actual people in the world 
going about their lives, and they all have a bit of a plate of shit to deal with. Now, in the hands of a good writer, the way you interweave these and the way things all come to a head in a really satisfying way can be great. And it reminds me a little bit of films like Loop Ring, Chop Drink by Nicholas Maynard. Mm. Another recent one, uh, Piano by Casper yeah. Yancis. Yes, yeah. And uh, yeah, I just, you know, I, I enjoyed it immensely. It went by, you know, uh, in a flash, as good films tend to do. It left you wanting more. To be honest, I mean, this was my introduction to Lauren as a writer. If we haven't said her full name yet, this is Lauren Orm, who we talked to in episode 80. Uh, she also runs the Cardiff Animation Festival and Cardiff Animation Nights, which is a regular meetup in Cardiff where they screen films and have a bit of a piss up, and it's always great fun. I think that's, it's one of the highlights of not only uh, Cardiff Animation Nights, you know, not only just the sort of Welsh animation scene or the Cardiff animation scene, but of the national animation scene. It really is. Uh, a wonderful excuse to go and enjoy uh, animated short filmmaking. Happily, after not doing a second edition this year, the Cardiff Animation Festival is doing its second edition, but this coming year, and I think uh, we talk a little bit about it in the interview, but basically, as with the predecessor Cardiff Animation Festival, they're going to keep it as a kind of biennial thing. Um, Sensible. Which is fair enough. Sensible. So yeah, so yeah, I, I mean, like I said, this is my first kind of exposure to Lauren as a creative fiction writer, having followed, you know, what she does artistically with Danny. And they have a studio together called Pickle Animation, where they do largely commission projects. And this film was actually made mainly by Winding Snake Productions, which is where Lauren was previously. And yeah, other than that, it's been mainly the sort of curational and event organization end. So it was a really happy thing to see just what chops she has as a storyteller and as a director. I guess I'll sort of also introduce David while we're at it, because I think we'll just sort of go straight into our chat with him afterwards. David Hutchinson, who has written for Squiggly in the past, and is now working up in London at a company called Wild Brain. Again, someone that we've both known for a while. Similarly, this is a project that he's been working on, it represents this whole other side to him. Like, as far as I've been aware, like, I remember, like, his student film, which was this kind of meditation on, like, absolute stress and despair. Like, it was in a call centre. It was just unrelenting. And he also... Oh, I I was thinking of another student film, because I went to university with him, but for his BA. Yeah. And he did one about an old man and a bee. Have you seen that one? That was more sort of, I think, informed by that kind of same sort of screechy Saturday morning cartoon fare that, like, I had in mind when I made uh, Sunscapades. But this series he's done now with Wild Brain, it's a lot more easygoing. It's, like, family-friendly, like, kids mainly in mind, and just very sort of easy on the the soul. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, he's bellowed, but fair play to him. As I mentioned, he's written for Squiggly. I'm always kind of interested in just what the deal is with YouTube and being seen on YouTube and how animation can even exist, like in series animation especially. I mean, this is animation for a younger audience, but all things considered, it's pretty fully realized. Mm. Like we go into the economics of it in the in the chat, but yeah, it was it was sort of nice to see it just wasn't that kind of, you know, primary colors, vector art, just doing nursery rhymes at you. 
Mm. which is, seems to make up like 99% of YouTube kids' content. David's show is very wholesome by comparison. It's called Boy and Dragon, and that's pretty much the synopsis as well. It's a boy and his dragon. They exist in the limitless world of their imagination and their adventure. Uh, honestly, it's something you can put on for your kids on your iPad and sit back and be relieved that it's not screeching at you or singing horribly at you. It's exactly the kind of kids content that I am really on board with. It's not shrill. It's not like banal. It's just fun. So boy and dragon. Uh, yeah. And so it's, it's doing the rounds on YouTube. It just sort of started, I guess about a week or so ago or a couple of weeks ago. And it's original content from Wild Brain. So Wild Brain, he'll explain more about what they do. The short version is that they do a lot of IP and content acquisition and serve as the main social media or YouTube platform to get stuff out there. And this is them kind of branching out into new original content and I guess seeing if it takes flight or not. That's uh, that's about the size of it. So we'll hear from uh, from David later on in the podcast as well. Then we'll join you again, and I'll do some ranting and raving. <laughs> but uh, yeah, what a treat! In the meantime, shall we uh, hear from Lauren Orm discussing her film Creepy Pasta Salad? Let's indeed. It will be nice to catch up on what you've been up to since we had you on the podcast last. We talked to you in episode eighty. During the first Cardiff Animation Festival, uh-huh. uh, which is coming back next year. We can talk a little bit about that later on. In the meantime, you have a film that's going to be playing at Encounters at Premiered earlier this year. Generally speaking, what have you been up to? Has it been all focused on this film in particular, or are you kind of juggling things? Juggling loads of things. So, yeah, we finished the festival. The festival was so hard, so that took a little bit of recovery from that one. Uh, and deciding to do it again was difficult, but we loved it so much we had to do it again. So, yeah, that's in the pipeline at the moment. And then also Danny Abram uh, and I launched Pickle Animation, which is our company. That was kind of last summer. So that's been going just over a year and going really well. And, yeah, and also we finished my film creepy pasta salad which i've been making for about four years so yeah getting that finished was really nice so i guess it it sort of predates then pickle kind of coming together is pickle kind of anything to do with it as far as getting it to the finish line or is it a whole separate project well yeah so we danny and i sort of launched pickle partly because she was working on creepy pasta salad and we were working really closely together and we just kind of learned to work together really well and kind of thought, oh, we could do this more often. So, yeah, it's all kind of tied up together in the, in the timelines of them. But, um, yeah, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> um, is it part of, I guess, Pickle's roster or are you, um, do you guys have like other stuff, like other irons in the fire? Like, do you do, like, commercial work or other types of things? We do uh, TV stuff. We just finished our first TV series for us, we'll see, uh, which was a preschool thing. And then, like, yeah, various other kind of one-off TV things. And we've done, like, a bunch of client work as well. We did a little project for Public Health Wales uh, to encourage people to go and get their smear tests, which everyone should go and do. Um, mm. Yeah, various things. Project uh, for... 
Do you know Charlotte Church is launching a school? <laughs> no, I do now. Did some animation to help explain what that will be like and stuff. Yeah, we've had quite a lot on actually. It's been a it's been a crazy first year. So what's the uh, the series about? Uh, it's Welsh language nursery rhymes. Um, the producer's Sean Jobbins, and she was looking on YouTube for these nursery rhymes so that she could kind of show the tune to her kids. And um, she couldn't find them anywhere, so she thought those need to be out there. So they're going up online, but they're going out on S4C as well, which for anyone who's not Welsh is the Welsh language broadcaster here. Oh. So when it comes to creepy pasta salad, as you mentioned, it's been... Uh, in production for quite a few years. At that point, then, at the beginning, what got it off the ground? Was it a particular scheme or a self-started thing? Or Yeah, it was the Beacons scheme, which is Film Camry Wells's uh, short film fund. So it's not just animation, it's, it's film as well. And um, they opened their call, and I had this idea that I'd had for a while I guess and I've been writing it and I had a script mm-hmm. and a production company that I was working with at the time called Winding Snake Productions so yeah I went in with them to get the funding and we got it so then I had to make it but <laughs> I think it was supposed to finish like quite a long time before it was mm. animation takes ages that's my excuse so you had this story then the story predated the scheme it was something you'd yeah, I can't even remember why I started writing it. I've not made a film since my graduation film from uni. And mm. I love animated shorts so much as part of the reason why we started the festival was me being obsessed with animated short films. So mm. I wanted to make one. And I guess I was sort of writing stuff down for a while and, and kind of like moving bits about. I, I sort of write things on little bits of paper and then I've got like a weird... A puzzle going on of little bits and bobs mm. that might tie together, but it was it was pretty unfocused until the funding sort of came along, and then gave me a reason to get a move on with it. Do you have then other kind of film ideas or things written or kind of you know embryonic that you'd one day want to make into other films, or has this been kind of the focus? So, yeah, one of the things about making the film was it just made me want to write more stuff so much. So sometimes I gave into that instead of doing any work. <laughs> but that that's the time when I do the most writing, is when I haven't got time to make the thing. So now that I could do another one, I'm sort of not writing as much, I think. It's just my <laughs> mind being contrary. But also, you know, have to focus on client work and paid jobs <laughs> for a while. <laughs> Because, um, yeah, it was funded, but it was, it's an 11 minute short and the way we made it was kind of fairly convoluted. So we, I think we had around 25k was our total budget, which sounds high, but it went quite quickly. <laughs> well, it's a great end result in, in a bit. I'll get onto like the animation side of things, but kind of a little bit more on, I guess, the, the story and stuff. And the writing I found with this film in particular was really very strong. The kind of observational scenarios, I guess, like each sort of person, I think particularly the kind of interaction with just the online activity and the kind of algorithmic intuition failing people, like looking up things in search terms. And there's just something really kind of on point about 
those little moments that really kind of gave it like a lot of substance. And I thought the way it sort of came together at the end was very sort of clever and, you know, really nice kind of twist. Oh, good. Because um, that took a while to get into that. Uh-huh. <laughs> For ages, I was like, I have no idea how this ends. <laughs> Did you work with people to get to an ending? I worked with a bunch of people. Yeah. So Amy, the producer, had some thoughts. We also worked with uh, Tracy Spottiswood, who was the exact producer and she was the kind of film crime Wales person when I got the funding although that role is now held by someone else because I worked on it for so long um <laughs> so she she was great with the writing as well and Nigel Kroll who does like has loads of writing credits like had a look at stuff and yeah went through went through it with a lot of people my partner helped as well yeah <laughs> It went through a lot of people's eyes, kind of thing. Shouldn't be name dropping people because I've definitely forgotten some. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, loads of help. <laughs> Did you find that kind of easy? Like, when it's your own kind of idea, is it is it a hard thing or uh, like a relief to kind of bring other people on to sort of workshop ideas? Uh, you know what? I thought I was going to hate it, but it was actually great. I just felt I was so close to it. I'm sure this is the thing with everybody writing film is you you get so close to it, you can't see the ways out of the little mazes that the narratives got into, whereas someone else maybe can. So, I, you know, I definitely had a lot of uh, advice that I ignored. Well, not necessarily advice, but ideas that people came up with that I sort of thought, could that work? No, that's not going to be what happens. Um, but yeah, after a while, we found our way with it. So yeah, it has this um, really nice look. Was this kind of always what it looked like in your head? Or was this another thing that was kind of brainstormed? So we definitely found it as we went along, but it's, it kind of mm. got closer and closer to what it was in my head as we went along with it. So to start off with, I love really convoluted ways of working. So I was like, we could just paint every frame in watercolour, which some people do and do amazingly, but it would not have been right for this film. So Danny mm. Abram was like, instrumental in making it work technically so we played a lot together with like how can we get kind of texture and painterly feel within it but still have like a pipeline that actually is possible and isn't just going to drag on for the rest of our lives although it did feel like that was happening (laughs) I think it is what I wanted it to look like but maybe I've just I've just imagined that now how is it kind of set up then is it like my guess, looking at it, I'm starting to sort of analyze like animation processes, but is it cell action or After Effects or something with rigs? It's something with rigs. Yeah, it's Moho. Do you know Moho? Moho, okay. It's um, I don't think that many people are using Moho yet, but it's um, Cartoon Saloon use it for some stuff. Hmm. But Danny loves Moho, so she was like, "This is the right thing for." this project and I didn't know it and I still don't know it that well because Dan did like most of the animation on this film I was like I can't wait for the art process to end so that I can join you in animation and it never really happened there was just so much art to produce Mm. that was the one thing that really surprised me actually was just how much artwork went into this film because as well it's like not that animation heavy people are quite still there's there's Mm. times where like people move a lot but there's a lot of times where people are just looking to the side (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> That's really we worked with a few other animators and I had to get them all to like really pair it back. I was like, no no, <laughs> characters in this film don't 
don't really animate the way, <laughs> the way that most anime characters animate. So they're drawn in Photoshop, and then we've baked in textures that I've been playing with from kind of real-life painting and stuff. Uh, and then, yeah, animated in Moho in a way that I think not many people were really doing at the time so it was quite cool to be playing with that they've just launched this was moho 12 for any tech fans and they've just launched moho 13 where there's a kind of a lot more capability to do stuff like this so i think if we started doing it now it would maybe have been easier <laughs> but it was fun anyway a fun technical challenge i don't know if danny would agree with that <laughs> <laughs> when you have the kind of limited parameters i guess like there were sort of like self-imposed restrictions, I guess, on the degree of animation to kind of get the story flow. Is that, is it harder than to kind of work out how to get from shot to shot, like in the animatic stage to kind of keep the story moving along when you know the characters aren't necessarily moving so much? Uh, no, I wouldn't necessarily say so. It's, mm-hmm. The characters not moving was more of an artistic choice than a, a pragmatic choice okay. just me being weird and liking people <laughs> who are just sort of staring i think you sort of project a lot of stuff onto an animated character who's not moving that much mm. you know if you put them in a situation and then have them perform quite subtly i think it lets people kind of project their own feelings onto the character so I quite like doing stuff like that, but I'm sure it makes it quite boring for animators who <laughs> work on it. Because <laughs> they're like, I want to do some performance. But yeah, that's that what I wanted to do, really. And I don't think I really knew that's what I wanted to do until probably halfway through. I was just sort of doing it. And Danny yeah. was just kind of working with each shot and doing what I, you know, making changes I was asking her to make. And then we sort yeah. of worked out that was the style of the film, was just... Not much is happening. <laughs> I'm making it sound really boring. Uh, I did notice that you had a voice cameo in it. <laughs> did you? I didn't Unless know if that would be obvious or not. I suppose I need to people who know me. But yeah, I do. I have got two lines. Very self-indulgent. Were you directing the rest of the cast then? I was, I directed most of them. Um, the only one who I didn't get to meet was Adam Buxton, um, who recorded it from his kind of podcast recording space at his house. So yeah, he's all set up there to do stuff like that. So he didn't really need to come to Cardiff, but yeah, he said he just sent me a bunch of different kind of performances of different lines. And then I kind of, he was like, are these okay? And they were so good. <laughs> So I just like picked between these brilliant recordings of the lines. Um, yeah, super lucky to work with him. That's great. Were you able to kind of get in touch with him and the other cast, like through the scheme people, or was that something that you kind of did directly? No, that was all Amy, the producer, got in touch with them uh, directly, I guess, and their agents and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. That's all producery business. <laughs> but she <laughs> did producery magic, getting them on board. So it was Adam Buxton, Richard Harrington, who I got to work with on the record, which was so fun. And Eve Miles and Ruth Maddock, who did their recording together with me directing, which was a really fun day as well. They're like old friends. So that was a good, a nice fun day. Oh, great. Uh, and also, of course, Phil did the music. 
who uh, I got to use a bit of his stuff in my last film. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm generally a fan of his. How did you find working with him? So awesome. Phil's brilliant. Yeah, I'd seen his, or well, heard his stuff on Anna Manzaris's films. And actually, so the reason I know Phil is we put one of Anna Manzaris's films on it. Card of Animation Nights. And <laughs> Phil, I think, like, messaged me and said, oh, I did the music on this and I live in Cardiff, so I'll come along. And I was like, what? <laughs> How has she ended up working with Phil from Cardiff? <laughs> so that was that was really cool to meet him. And then we sort of kept in touch since then. And, and the, the music on But Milk is Important, it was, was um, so good. Like, the score really added so much to that film. I was such a fan. So, you know, when it came to looking for a musician for this, I, it was a bit of a no-brainer, really. Did you have any kind of involvement in the process or did you kind of leave him to his own devices? Uh, we'd send stuff back and forth and he came and right. see us a couple of times and stuff. We had like a first kind of meeting about it and I was like, uh, so Phil, also something that is a thing is there's um there's a death metal track in the film so what are we gonna do about that have you got any ideas and he was like no worries used to be in a death metal band i'll just record it (laughs) i was like what this is absolute fate that he's working on this film um yeah so he sent me some sort of um he calls them sketches like first kind of recordings of stuff and He'd sort of go, oh, I'm thinking of this for a theme for this character and stuff. And I would mainly love it. And I'd have some pointers about different things. And yeah, it was, it was like reasonably collaborative, but I can't really take much credit. Like Phil's just brilliant. Uh, so it'll be playing an encounter soon. Uh, it premiered earlier this year up in Edinburgh. Did you go up for that? Yeah. 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 That was really fun. How'd it go? It was good. This is, so this is my first time making a comedy film and I uh. hadn't anticipated how nerve wracking it would be to sit in the cinema thinking, is anyone going to laugh or is this <laughs> just going to be the most painful 11 minutes that anyone's ever had to sit through where everyone's just silent? So I've only seen it screened twice publicly. So the second one was on Monday night. Um, at Chapter Movie Maker, which is a lovely kind of local work night that a guy called Tom Betts runs uh, at Chapter in Cardiff. And both times people laughed. So, yeah, it's been a, a big relief each time. But I think it's just going to be really nerve-wracking every single time I sit down and watch it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll be there. I'll lead the charge. Please do. I'll hear your distinctive laugh ringing out. That would be good. On the subject of festivals, uh, as you mentioned, Cardiff Animation Festival is coming back. Yeah. For its uh, second edition. It took a year off. Was there any sort of particular reason behind that other than just having a very busy workload? We intended the festival before it happened to be annual. So we, you know, the whole time we were planning it, we were like, we'll be doing this every year. And it was just so much. Oh my gosh, festivals are so much. We had a team at the time of like seven, eight kind of cool people. And some of us were just so burnt out by it. So yeah, we had a lot of chats about whether to even do it again. And everyone was really kind of felt in their heart that they wanted it to happen again. But I just think we couldn't have gone straight. We'd have pretty much had to go straight into planning it. 
So yeah, and the the previous there used to be a kind of animation festival that I'm sure lots of people remember about twenty years ago, uh, and that was biennial. So we kind of thought, well, there's precedent for this being biennial, and maybe it would benefit all of our lives for that to be the case. Like, let's be realistic about what we can actually achieve. And I hope by making it biennial, we can kind of keep it going rather than fizzle out after a few years, which so many festivals do because it's just a lot. <laughs> yeah. To do. I'm assuming it's probably sort of early days as far as any sort of announcements or teasers or stuff that's on the bill, but the call for entries is open yeah. now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that just opened and we've had, I think, about 100 submissions so far. Um, so yeah, I'm really looking forward to watching those and people can send us their films by going to cardofanimation.com. Yeah, I'm really excited to start watching stuff. I haven't got stuck into it yet. So yeah, the deadline is the 6th of December, but it's really, really cheap if you get them in by the 4th of October. Yeah, it's $2 or $1, depending how long your film is, basically, or if you're a student or not. That was Lauren Orm. Be sure to check out the Cardiff Animation Festival. Call for entries at cardiffanimation.com slash 2020. And Lauren's film Creepy Pasta Salad screens at this year's Encounters Festival on Thursday, September 26th at noon as part of the program Animation 3, Her Story. So joining me now is another friendo squiggly, as well as a site contributor, our pal David Hutchinson. David, hello. Hello, Ben. How are you? I'm all right. How have you been keeping? I've been absolutely wonderful, Ben. Thanks. Uh, David, uh, as I mentioned, he's done some stuff for Squiggly uh, over the years. David and I both studied at UWE. Uh, was it the BA or the MA? For it you was the MA. You were in the year above me. Yeah, so there was a bit of overlap uh, there. Yeah. And what a time we had. I remember we saw a lovely lecture once by that woman that wrote the comic strip Funhouse. Oh, the one who... The one who does the Bechdel test, Alison Bechdel. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was a good time. Yes. That's funny, because I'm, I'm kind of... Uh, since then, I kind of got into her work quite a lot, but I didn't really know her back then when I saw the talk. No, I didn't either. I, uh, I've yet to make a film that I think passes the Bechdel test <laughs> by the criteria. I don't know if she actually has any like say in that. I think they just kind of like used her name. I think so. But maybe my next one. So these days, uh, you're over in London mm -hmm. with uh, Wild Brain. That's correct. I, and I've been aware of them in much the same way I'm aware of most companies uh, of this type when their press releases get wafted my way. Generally speaking, up until quite recently, those have tended to sort of focus on like IP acquisitions. They have actually been able to grab up some pretty gigantic properties because there's a lot of big names that um, they seem to be associated with. Is there a way to kind of sum up what they do or what you do within uh, the company kind of succinctly? Yeah, so Wildbrain own and operate a number of YouTube channels, including ones by quite famous brands such as, most recently, The Moomins. They're a new acquisition. Uh, and they also produce original content for YouTube, Amazon, Roku, streaming. Uh, which is where I come in. So I'm on the creative team and I work in production. So my job is to get content made, basically. Yeah, I guess uh, you've done made a show. I've done made a show. So many congratulations, first of all. Oh, thanks very much, Ben. I think it launched, by the time this goes out, it will have been a couple of weeks. 
but it's relatively uh, recently. But it seems like there's an awful lot of stuff in the chamber. Like, lots of stuff's been going up quite regularly since, like, the day of launching. And it's YouTube, but it's animation, but it's not the kind of animation that you just kind of knock out. It's quite considered, relatively speaking. Were you guys just working on this for, like, months and months and months? Broadly speaking, yeah. So we started production on this uh, last year so that we'd have sort of a nice head of steam for going into the YouTube launch. And we're still in production now. So we're sort of working on multiple episodes at once. That way we have sort of a nice upload cadence. Yeah. One of the reasons why I never kind of legitimately considered YouTube as a viable sort of, you know, way of being creative is that kind of, it did seem like certainly it was rewarding a lot less effort. Like the people who in more recent years have been kind of like huge names are just the ones who kind of sit down and blather on and play video games or just do weird stuff. Mm -hmm. And then animation, like I've known a few people who are doing animation like regularly, like uh, Yost, who hasn't been on the podcast, but we've had him on the site, who does Cartoon Box. And that's become this huge thing. And he does these kind of doodle skits, yeah, you know, and knocks them out like once a week. Even that is quite daunting. And they have built up a fan base. But then if you compare it to like people who were opening up uh, Kinder Eggs, <laughs> and just filming like what toy is inside and they get you know hundreds of millions of views i guess it's just all kind of relative so did you guys sort of go into this then with i guess a clear sort of strategy or expectations or hopes of like what you wanted to hit well a lot of people are trying to crack this thing known as kids youtube because it's a place where a lot of kids eyes go and mm -hmm. I think nowadays when you actually think about the amount of content kids consume online versus the amount of content they actually approach a television and use a remote control to switch on, etc., they're probably more likely to be online. So for that reason, a lot of companies are interested in, you know, cracking the YouTube code. Mm -hmm. And as you've said, there's a lot of content where it seems learn with colors will get you 30 billion views. Mm -hmm. But there's definitely a market there, and I think that it's a case of pumping out a good product that sort of speaks to what kids, uh, Boy and Dragon's aimed at five to seven year olds, although I, although personally, I think a good cartoon is viewable by anyone of any age. But basically, the plan is if you can get yourself enough banked content and the content is good, um, you should, if put in the right places at the right times, following correct, you know, YouTube best practice, you should find an audience. And I should mention that uh, Boy and Dragon is your show. Probably should have led with that, but I've only been doing podcasting seven years. That's <laughs> so. okay, then. <laughs> yeah, so it's on, um, but it's called Boy and Dragon. It's on the uh, Wild Brain uh, YouTube channel. Or does it have its own channel? It has its own channel. Ah, okay. Which is called Boy and Dragon. There you go. Pretty easy to remember. I mean, I, you were sort of saying before, like, the character's a boy, dragon, and the evil wizard is called Evil Wizard. It, it, it sort of cuts through the treacle, I guess. Yeah, it, it's, we're a very literal-minded show, Ben. I don't think my <laughs> capacity for creative uh, thought is very high. But there have been so many, like, already. Like, there's been all sorts of different, like, ideas and... You know, it's all very family-friendly content for young'uns, but it looks great. I think the um, the we'll go, I guess, into the animation side of things in a little bit, but it doesn't really look like 
like that sort of everything homogenized YouTube animation look that I think a lot of people like can probably picture very vector and asset based, mm -hmm. really easy to kind of like very lazy rushed rigs with sort of minimal design that you can kind of rush through. I mean, this is pretty much full animation, like the, you know, the designs and the expressions and the um, articulation and everything that's all conveyed through largely frame by frame animation, which is probably without really sort of knowing any context, that would be sort of the last thing I would think of if I was going to develop a production pipeline for YouTube. How did you guys make that work? Essentially by keeping it low budget elsewhere. So you'll notice okay. there's very minimal backgrounds. Mm. And the stories, where these stories are three minutes max. So we're not making half-hour shows every episode. So that's one of the ways to keep costs down. We're also very limited in the amount of characters we're using. I think we are using free characters. Everything else counts as a prop. Right. So we only have free character designs max. So it's kind of about cutting corners in ways that you don't notice. But now I've just told you what they are, so... <laughs> Uh, now, now they will scream out. Yeah, <laughs> go me. View. But there's a bunch of little tactics. It's still limited animation for the most part, but mm. we pay a lot of attention to expressions because they're very YouTube-y. But also, expressions are great. Big, bold expressions. Like in the world of mid-naughties animation, even on television, they were seemingly a thing of the past. Although cartoons have certainly became a lot more expressive again with Adventure Time, Steven Universe, all that stuff. So, yeah, that's how we're doing it, basically. I think the last time I saw you, which would have been about a year ago, and maybe this was because this was already kind of bubbling away, but I do remember having a, a quite a long chat about the sort of culture of YouTube, especially as regards kids' content, and how kind of unfathomable and hard to decipher it is, and how tricky it is to crack, but also some of the weird dark corners of it. Huh. You probably remember a long time ago, probably like six plus years ago now, I was working for Jaunty, who um, was known as Weeble. Mm -hmm. And back in the sort of early days of viral animation where everything was on Flash, like pre-YouTube, he was doing these things that were these enormously popular and very addicting, you know, all, everything kind of like a sort of baby shark vibe, but it was about like badges or... Um, the other ones. Yes. <laughs> Badges was one of the ones. Yes, yes, yes. Narwhals. And they've been doing some preschool stuff. Laura worked on one about manatee. They were dugans. Okay. Relatively recently. Like, I've talked with Jaunty quite a bit. It's been a while since he's been on the podcast, but, like, he's kind of been living through the migration of, you know, how animation was, like, consumed on the internet, like, migrating over to YouTube and all of the trickiness of that. And I think a lot of the stuff that I worked on with him, which was for this specific uh, YouTube channel, it never, I think, resonated or hit audiences in the way that his earlier stuff did, that very repetitive, almost unsettlingly in your face, like just over and over and over again, loopable limbos <laughs> with music in the background. I think that that's something that's kind of, like I said, with like Baby Shark, it's still always going to be there. I guess is if you're doing something that has like actual stories or lessons or just any kind of skit, I suppose, that isn't something sort of mindless, do you feel like that's more of a challenge to kind of get people to watch it? Well, 
truthfully, a lot of the videos that you're talking about, these sort of repetitive, mindless uh, videos, they are aimed at pretty much they're aimed at one-year-olds who've gotten hold of their mother's tablet. Mm. So they don't particularly have to be about anything. They can just be bright colors, nice music, and they can be extremely long because the one-year-old is going to watch some of it, then maybe wander off, then come back and watch a bit more of it. So in that respect, I don't think there's anything, not that you were suggesting there was, but I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with them. For the age range slightly above that, which is kind of post preschool, once someone's sort of developing a bit more of a personality and tastes for comedy, I think that the rules are very much, in some respects, similar to the the rules for linear broadcasting, which is that, you know, a kid who's just gotten home from school wants to watch something comedic, something with slapstick, something that kind of has a slightly adult edge that makes them feel adult for enjoying it. Mm. You know, it's a bit like when You'd watch Rockwell's One Life as a kid and there'd be a joke that was slightly adult that you didn't get, but you realize there's an adult joke going on here. And I feel smart for recognizing there's an adult joke going on. I don't get it myself. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that was especially true of The Simpsons and more modern day examples. The same is true of Adventure Time. The same is especially true of Gumball. Yeah. You know, I think kids are becoming a lot more savvy about animation today. And in general, people are becoming savvy about production because everyone is sort of producing themselves. Everyone's starting a YouTube channel or the equipment to do so is now widely available. So in that respect, the audience is actually quite savvy these days. Hmm. And I think it's about writing and targeting towards that. As, as you probably remember, there are sort of semi-regular meetups like locally and close to Bristol where people kind of show up and talk about animation that they're working on something that i have found in terms of the people who kind of approach us or present stuff at meetups and things like that i think a lot of people still hold on to the idea that you can your break will come from putting your idea out on youtube then there are some people who you know they i think they kind of feel like they understand like the realities of an animation production pipeline and they'll put something together that's so lacking in so many sort of key areas of how to engage the audience. It's one of those things where you do kind of almost want to take people aside and say, look, there are other ways to do this or there are better ways to develop an IP rather than sink months or even years of your life into something that's going to be like 25 minutes and eventually one day go up on YouTube and get 100 views. Yeah. I also think some people will look at YouTube, successful YouTube videos and think that's being done by one person. And they'll be unaware that there's a, at that times, quite a large team behind the content. Yeah. I think a big allure of YouTube over linear broadcast is that it feels a bit dangerous. It feels like the person uploading the content is the only person involved in that channel and they're the producer and lead creative and star when in actuality there's an editor, a writer, a PR person, a producer, and in many respects, it's a much more slick production than the viewer would be led to believe. Yeah, I'm sure there are people who still think that Simon's Cad is done with just one guy, because why would they not, you know? Yeah, and Simon's Cat is done by, I think there's literally been a company set up to just make Simon's Cat. Yeah. A company enshrined in law with employees and directors and secretaries <laughs> in service of Simon's cat. 
Uh, yeah, one of the animators is a squiggly writer, or had been in the past. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like with anything, like any sort of big name attached to a thing, the Nick Parks or the Seth MacFarlane's or the whoever's. Okay, this is an idea I sort of came up with. Uh, you guys run with it. Make it funny, please. Yeah, I mean, it's all animation is a collaboration. I think if you're someone who's a complete animation auteur, it's like what you said. I mean, there's a chance you could be successful, um, but good luck. Yeah. I mean, you're somewhat of an animation auteur, Ben, so you've got, you can speak from experience. One of the lessons I think I learned from uh, writing my book, Independent Animation, Developing, Producing, and Distributing Your Animated Films, available now from all good stockists, uh, was that collaboration isn't something to be feared or a kind of admission of inability. And I never kind of dug my heels in out of like the arrogance of my ideas are so great, no one can tamper with them. It was more, I think, the fear of this thing will crumble if I try and bring too many people into it. Or maybe it was the admission of if you can't take on all of these areas, maybe you, you shouldn't be doing this. I think with the last film in particular, it was just like, just let someone else paint your backgrounds. <laughs> like, make them look nice. And, you know, it makes so much difference. The YouTube auteur, sometimes they're kind of isolated from the industry. Sometimes they don't actually work in animation. And so they just aren't aware of how important that is. Nor do they seem especially interested in getting into it. It's like they want it to be like this hobby that will one day make them rich. But as far as actually climbing the career ladder within animation, they don't, I mean, this isn't everyone, but a few instances of people I've met, they don't seem particularly interested in that route. And that's fine. Yeah. I mean, I need to make money to live, unfortunately. I'm not in a position where I can't make money. No. I mean, if someone wants to get in touch with me and give me a lot of money, I, I'd happily take it. Any takers? Well, it's out there now. Okay. Just talk to Ben. He'll He'll pass the message on. As far as the idea then, was this something that you'd had like in your back pocket for a while or was it developed at the studio? This was developed while I was at the studio and I was trying to just get inside the imagination of a child because when we get older, I think we back just by def uh, because of our experiences, we start to think more linearly. Whereas I think children are highly imaginative in a sort of divergent way, meaning I can remember when I was a kid playing pirate with some friends, and I remember our game went like this. Oh, we're pirates now. We're looking for treasure. Ah, the treasure's on the moon, so now we're space pirates. Right. You see my... You see what I, so I was thinking yeah. if we could come up with a world that would allow that kind of sudden turn to story logic, that would be fun. That would be a source of stories. Because if you're making content for YouTube, you do want to kind of ensure you have an endless source of stories in there av available to you. You don't want to do something about a man who just sits in a room all day. Mm. I don't think you can get that many episodes out of that. So yeah, and I combined that with the idea of, you know, there's this, the myth of like the brave knight and his loyal dragon. And I was like, well, what if the dragon's just a moron? Mm. A nice dragon that has all the powers a dragon would have. He can breathe fire, he can fly, but he's just a slobbering puppy hmm. trapped in the body of a dragon and i was like well that's interesting uh so yeah that's kind of the seeds of the idea now that it's been a little while since it's gone up have you i mean first of all i guess what's the main sort of age range you're aiming for with it well 
to go a bit old school, I think that a good cartoon is enjoyable to anyone. You know, the early Warner Brothers shorts, those Tom and Jerry shorts, were intended for all audiences. Hmm. Not that I'm comparing myself to those, but the audience is probably, if you've got a kid aged between five and nine, they're prob- it's probably for them. Right. I think we've talked about this before quite a bit on the podcast when we talk about like shows for preschoolers or for slightly older children. If it's bearable for the parents, that automatically like puts it right at the top of the pile as far as like its value as a show. Like everyone I know, and I'm sure, you know, you've got friends who are parents as well, that all the stuff they have to watch that's just intolerably shrill and just all primary colors and just cutesy voices and no real discernible wit, just kind of banality after banality. Fun for kids, like very gratifying for kids, but you can have both. Like shows have proved that you can have the colors, you can have the loud noises, you can have the pacing and everything like that and not drive the parents insane. And the thing that immediately, you know, struck me about this show to my immense relief, obviously, because you're a friend and I <laughs> didn't want to have to do the old, uh, uh, damning with faint praise. Like, oh, I like the, the, um, I like the color scheme. This is just watchable. It's a show that anyone could have on, you know, their TV or their iPad or whatever with their kid in the room and it wouldn't drive them nuts. They'd probably find it quite entertaining. I think that's the thing you really want to hit with this type of content, something that is at worst quite tolerable and at best something that everyone's getting a kick out of. So, yeah, thank you for not making a really annoying show. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. I was tempted to. Uh, No, thank you for saying that. That's very nice to hear from you. And I think that this is a world where potentially once this video ends, the kid can literally press replay. Uh Uh-huh. That option's right there on the screen in front of them, so it better be something the parent can stand. Yeah. So yes, to people who are um, looking for something new to show their young'uns, or if they just want to idly entertain themselves, where can they go to check out Boy and Dragon? If you go to YouTube and you search for Boy and Dragon, that should be the first thing that shows up. You can use an ampersand or the word and. Go nuts. It's good to have options in life. Absolutely. I just did a little test here using... Uh, my fairly unaffected business YouTube account, and it is indeed the first thing that comes up, so hopefully that'll be the case elsewhere. Failing that, it's the Boy and Dragon Wild Brain channel on YouTube. Yeah, and it would be great to get people's opinion on it. I'd be very interested. Do you still have yourself a social media presence? I do. If you go to Twitter or any social media, Instagram, etc., and you search for David Bazat, that's B-Z-A-T-T, David Bazat, you can find me on there. I'm quite irregular, but I do check my notifications. Excellent stuff. Well, David, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, all the very best with the show. I hope it continues to go well. Nice to finally have you on the podcast. Yeah, it's nice to speak to you again, Ben. Cheers. So thank you to David Hutchinson for chatting with us about Wild Brain and his show Boy and Dragon. And you can check them out at the Boy and Dragon YouTube channel. So one of the other things that David and I were chatting about when we were catching up, he used to live in Bristol and we would mainly get together and kind of do an animation podcast, (laughs) like basically just sort of ranting about what was upsetting us when it came to mostly The Simpsons. (laughs) And I think actually David moving to London 
kind of marked me just tapping out of The Simpsons altogether because without someone to complain about it with, it just became this exercise in self-destruction. So I don't really watch The Simpsons anymore. It's a thing that exists. I'll watch it if it's, you know, an old one, of course. Why wouldn't you treat yourself to, you know, uh, Itchy and Scratchy Land or I Am the Lizard Queen? But he he put me on to, like, an example of what The Simpsons has become. Now, do you watch The Simpsons at all? Is it at all on your radar anymore? I recently unburdened myself from Sky Television, so I don't catch any of the new episodes uh, like I used to do. But like you, if there's an old episode on, I'm finding myself like, whoa, 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 I have to stop because there's the episode where they build a casino. Mm. Or whoa, whoa, I have to stop because it's Who Shot Mr. Burns. Yeah. And and just sit and wait for one quote and then just find about five or six more <laughs> that I completely forgot about and will just, you know, laugh my head off. Uh, I I still love the show. I love it so much. I love it so much that you know, if I if I'm scrolling through Twitter and I see like a kind of top ten Simpsons episodes, I'll click on it not to read what the top ten Simpsons episodes are, but to know that I'll get mad because Bart the genius isn't on it. You know, it's that type of thing. So so uh, it, it's uh, that that type of thing that I'm I, I still absolutely love uh, the Simpsons for. Uh, not enough to get the episode right in my head that I just said then. I shouldn't have really have revealed this, but it's Bart Gets an F is the best Simpsons episode. But Bart the Genius is good. First one I ever had on VHS. But yes, long story short, no. A lot of history there. A lot of history. Certainly, I think the increasing factor of dipping into it, as it were, and I will watch what I am sure is a brand new episode, and then I'll see in the credits made in 2008 yes yeah you know what i mean like at this point yeah it's not like i've missed a few episodes it's you can clump together an entire era and it's just not a show i watch but when it's so objectionable sometimes i have to pay attention so david put me onto this it's on youtube the video name is west wing story right and i'll send you a link and this, I think, could represent the absolute nadir of, you know, a show I considered to be quite a beloved thing in its day. Oh, now this. Right, I'm going to... Yeah, yeah. So many problems, tariffs. I need a distraction. So Donald Trump's in his office. He doesn't sound like Donald Trump. He doesn't look like Donald <laughs> Trump. And for some reason, there's a picture on his desk uh, of... People that were in the news uh, maybe six months ago. Yeah. I guess this isn't a brand new... This is about a month old now. Yeah. But again, like, you know, I miss I miss the up-to-the-minute Simpsons news. Um, but yeah, I guess <laughs> a little while ago, you know, these were the Democratic leading ladies that he was making disparaging remarks about. Mm. This piece of shit video, it's most objectionable... Because it's ideologically meant to be on my side, it's a song and dance number that's a kind of pastiche of West Side Story. The sound-alike approach to composing the music is abominable. Yeah, it doesn't really like when they had like the Mary Poppins episode. You could be forgiven for thinking they were singing the actual songs from Mary Poppins, but just with different words. But they were. You know, the the arrangements of those songs 
were just legally different enough. Just hmm. little inversions of the melody, uh, slight tweaks of the chord progression, but fundamentally, you obviously, you know, you connect to the song immediately. This took me like half of the song to try and realize which one it was meant to be. And it's the only song everyone knows from West Side Story, which is, um, you know, I want to be in America. The lyrics are so crowbarred in, and even the actual recording, if you listen to the first... Let me see. Okay, so the very first line is, they shouldn't be in America, him singing the line, okay? Listen to the delivery of that line, and how clearly the word America is spliced from two different takes. Right, let me see. They shouldn't be in America. No one oh my god. America. That is. Like, that's abominable. That clangs. That's like, f- you know, first five episodes of the Squiggly Animation podcast <laughs> level splicing. Or when I'm allowed to so, edit my Steve, interviews. How has the. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. And so then, like, the dialogue just goes. I'm just going to play a little bit out. She's not a big presence in my life. Your love life makes us heave. You two will never see Tel Aviv. You're greasing your palm with emoluments. It's okay with God, says my pants. Like, who would, honestly, anyone with emotional intelligence who is left-leaning, who would watch this and be like, yes, you go get him, Simpsons. It's the most obvious, pandering, trite, shitty way of doing Trump-oriented comedy. Hmm. And it's The Simpsons. Okay, so I'll get to the most objectionable bit. And in the uh, not-too-distant past, you have been in the position of being an animation educator. (laughs) So this will probably make your blood boil in the way that it did mine. Get to the 50-second mark, where they all start dancing on the grass. Yes. I know where you're going. I know where you're going. What the fuck? <laughs> the perspective in this shot. <laughs> well, is... no, I, I'm, I'm. Carry on, carry on. But I've got a defence. All right. Well, basically, I'll, I'll describe it, and then I shall hear your rebuttal. There are, I would say, four different planes of existence frankly like not just dimensionality it's a bird's eye shot more or less of the white house lawn the four democratic ladies aoc et al are doing a kind of west side story-esque dance number and donald trump is cowering because in real life he's so known to be cowed by reasonable articulate people (laughs) they are dancing as though we're watching them like staring straight ahead at them but we're looking down so logically for them to be in the proportions they are they should be lying on the fucking grass and this is accentuated by the fact that there are about a hundred protesters outside of the white house on the other side of the gate and they're all drawn with this again not very well realized but it's at least kind of trying to adhere to the notion that it's a bird's eye view but the dimensions are still wrong but it's so f***ing jarring. Like, the axis lines. <laughs> and Donald Trump is on his own set of axes as well. So it's at least three different, like, Blood, sets of y axes. axes of evil, if you ask me, eh? Politics. Dab straight. That's why we keep you on board, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> 
Remember in the old days of The Simpsons when you'd pause a sign that they passed and the sign would be f***ing hilarious? Mm-hmm. Here are the, here's an example. I've paused this to shit on the animation and the uh, draftsmanship, but the signs the protesters are holding up strap in for hilarity. One of them says impeach. One of them says lock him up. And the other one, this is the coup de gras. This sign is the most reading you've done in years. Burn. <laughs> this show can go fuck itself. <laughs> What a betrayal. <laughs> you know how those people like are so betrayed by She-Ra or Thundercats being redesigned? Yeah. This is like that, but real. <laughs> this is like when this really happened. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've got to defend the perspective here because you've got to remember that this is The Simpsons, Ben. And there was an episode where Homer joined the Union and he had to lie on his side and spin around in a circle on the floor. You remember? <laughs> well, that's a th- that's from the Three Stooges. That was the guy's thing he would do. You know? That's what these guys are doing. We're not, he's not defying physics. He's just... <laughs> I mean, actually, okay, to be fair, some of those really great episodes, big HDTVs aren't very kind to them. I was watching uh, the Boy Scouts one the other day. Mm. Some of the drawings in that do kind of suck. To be fair. Yeah. And it's like great scenes. Like the, if you watch the um, Hans Molman, this is a knife scene, <laughs> that's drawn appallingly. Right. And, and Hans Molman's size changes like from shot to shot, like ludicrously. So, okay. I guess maybe it doesn't have the greatest track record of um, perfectly in proportion animation. But, but this but is particularly figured. bad. This is, and, and this is, and it's no, it's not like they only had a week to put this out because I've mm. seen them do quick gags and it's been put together a lot better. This is like, we've got, we you can have it fast, you can have it cheap, or you can have it good. Mm. And they just picked the worst of all cases because it took ages the gag, the gag is is done. You know that that's wasted. Uh, it's clearly put together in quite a cheap way. The crowd is barely moving. There's just a few. The signs are bobbing up and down. There's a few arms waving. There's a lot of cell cut out animation in terms of like you know the legs when they're all doing the dance and stuff. Uh, and the rest of it is just you know somebody's obviously trying their best and going to town and you know making the Trump character move around stuff, but. I'm not getting much from this. It's not, it's not this, like I say, it's not the Simpsons that you knew growing up. However, you know, the, uh, the ship of Thebes, uh, theory, the idea that, or triggers broom, the idea that, uh, there's this ship and you replace the sails with new sails. You replace the mast with a new mast. You replace the, the hull with a new hull. All this, when does it stop being that particular ship? And when does it start being a brand new vessel? And I think you've got the same thing with The Simpsons. The only issue is that we've seen it gradually being replaced from a luxury cruise liner to just a pile of turds floating around in the ocean. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. Although, I mean, there are still, you know, some kind of key members there that have remained throughout. Mm -hmm. And I think the one actually that this musical number also kind of highlights, especially 
is they recently kicked out Alf Clausen, who, for you know most of the show's run, wrote all the music, hmm. uh, except for the theme song, which was Danny Elfman. But all of the variations of the theme song and all of the proper musical numbers were by Alf Clausen, and you know they were wonderful pieces of music i i actually had them as albums and you could listen to them as though you were listening to you know the soundtrack to a broadway musical but it was funny mm. the synthesized orchestral arrangement of this song highlights in such an important way how crucial that guy's contributions were to the show that's mm. so limp and so undynamic and so unengaging and especially this bit just after the uh physics defying lawn dance sequence where we we're still dancing on the lawn but it's a different angle and trump hilariously and with fear making his voice tremble announces oh no the democratic candidates are coming and this conga line of um not conga line uh, can can line of democrats appears on the white house lawn again superlative animation it's the shittiest kick dance cycle I've ever seen animated. <laughs> and the way they all come on screen is a f***ing motion tween. Yeah. But the music is then this can-can music that's, that sounds like a f***ing demo you'd get with a Casio keyboard. Yeah. This is terrible. Yeah. It is a shame to see, uh, you know, the Simpsons that were uh, the forefront of parody and the forefront of, of just, you know, a uh, full understanding of... Of, 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 of comedy and how comedy worked uh, you know people would graduate from The Simpsons and go and do a uh, 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 fantastic you know Conan O'Brien and uh, Brad Bird you know all these kind of uh, people who are still producing good work you know uh, they got their, their their proving ground was The Simpsons and boy did they prove you know uh, and it's just a shame to see it go downhill you know so so badly I mean just for one sketch you know uh, but it's the Trump jokes. Now, I'm, like you said earlier on, I don't for a second want to sound like I'm upset at the fact that they're taking the mickey out of Donald Trump. It's the fact that it's such a weak and shitty mm. jab at him. And it's nothing unique. It's nothing new. It's nothing uh, groundbreaking in the way that this has been put forward. It's nothing that would remotely wound him. No. What do you think of like how deftly they were able to very casually incorporate political send-ups into what they did? Uh, I'm sure you know the very famous George Bush clip. Yes. In which you know George um, Bush Sr. at a public speaking event made some comment about the American public being more like the Waltons and less like the Simpsons. So they did a little animation of the Simpsons watching this, and Bart turns to his parents and goes, we're just like the Waltons. We're waiting for an end to the Depression, too. <laughs> that was a nice little fuck you. <laughs> but they would also, I mean, and, and George Bush Sr. becomes a character in the show in a great episode, and but yeah. they would also take pops at Clinton, too. Because Clinton. Yeah. It's not about Democrat or Republican at a certain point. Authority is really what the main target should be. And something that embraces the idiosyncrasies of both extreme ends, that's, I think, more successful as satire. Yes. Because you know that there's a kind of, not necessarily even an impartiality to it, but there's, at least they know kind of both sides of the coin. They know enough about what they're talking about. This is a very one-sided 
like I said before, pandering, give the public what they think the public want, and our audience is most definitely left-leaning or we don't want to acknowledge them. You know, and the, the, when you think, I mean, this lineup of Democratic candidates that Trump is hilariously struggling to keep up with in terms of his cardio health as they all kick their legs into the air, and you're looking at them and half of them are pieces of shit. <laughs> Like, Jesus Christ, the f***ing state of affairs where Joe Biden is the good guy. <laughs> the Simpsons of old would have given that guy a roasting, too. Yes. I'm absolutely sure. Anyway. Yeah, it, it, in terms of story-wise, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's nice to go on about this for 45 minutes, however long it's been. But I'm enjoying myself immensely. It's great, isn't it? It's good this is the, the most fun I've had from The Simpsons in a decade. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get the blood flowing again. Uh, <laughs> but it's like the entire script, the entire premise, the entire execution has been put together through a Twitter algorithm, mm. and that's how it's been how it's been made. It's you know, pick your favourite tweets, stick them up, and make a make a little funny segment. Yeah, the jokes are almost bot generated. Yeah, you're right. It's like you're Boris Johnson without the class. You're like that sort of level of like insight. Yeah. Anywho. So, um, tune in every, um, every, it doesn't even say when The Simpsons is on. <laughs> the YouTube metadata people realizes wouldn't, uh, win them anyone. It'll be on, it'll be on Disney Plus until the end of time, <laughs> which is in a few weeks. So what else is pissing Ben off today? <laughs> well, uh, let's, let's, maybe we should move on to, um, uh, our next guest for this episode. They're not pissing you off, are they? Uh, they they're not, actually. They're representing something that uh, uh, doesn't piss me off in the slightest, but it, it might bring to mind something else. But uh, let's see. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next guest we've got on in this uh, Friends of Squiggly edition <laughs> uh, is uh, uh, representatives from the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation. Uh, so uh, John Walsh and uh, Connor Heaney. Uh, I've come to talk a little bit about uh, Ray Harryhausen's uh, 100th, uh, I suppose, anniversary. It'd be unfair to call it his birthday. But, uh, yeah, for the 100th anniversary of his birth, uh, there's going to be a series of events and initiatives uh, to uh, celebrate the life of this uh, visual effects, special effects, and animation titan. So I've got a little sit-down with uh, uh, John Walsh and uh, Connor Heaney from the Ray and Diana Harryhausen collection. Uh, to talk about archives, to talk about the plans for the future, uh, and to talk about uh, John's new book as well. Well, I think Harryhausen. Obviously, I, I'm not even going to bother explaining who Harryhausen is to you know this audience. <laughs> Someone who I definitely, you know, as time goes on, I feel more and more appreciation for. I mean, I always had a lot of respect for what he did, and you know how he contributed to the world of practical effects and cinema in general, really. I've been feeling that, I think, the most... We've been watching a lot of, like, horror movies of late. I like horror movies. And some of the... It, I, we, I had been feeling like we were going through a bit of, a like, a renaissance because there had been some quite satisfying ones um, that really sort of dealt with suspense and stuff like Midsommar, for example, has some great practical effects in it and... Um, it's kind of playing around with what the genre even is. And you would quite often in the olden days of horror get some really great stop motion animation. And it would be lovely to kind of talk with, you know, some other experts in that field down the line as well. But 
one thing I think that we need to officially separate from contemporary horror is CG animation. I think it's got to go. Mm-hmm. Now, I went to see a motion picture uh, the other week called It Chapter 2. <laughs> now, I don't know if you saw It Chapter 1. I didn't know. Okay. I didn't particularly think it was the best film in the world. I was, I enjoyed it. It was pretty camp. There's a kind of night. I mean, people I'm sure are familiar with the story of it. It was a very famous book. And of course, there's the old Tim Curry version. Uh, it's a kind of stand by me, but with an evil monster who makes himself look like a clown and he kills kids. The first movie is about these kids trying to sort of deal with this. And there's a real sense of menace about it for all its campness. The new movie, throughout the movie, every time it was going to go into the like areas of being remotely scary, animation would appear and f*** it up. <laughs> and it made me resentful of my own you know, industry. <laughs> this used to happen, I think, a lot more with sequels in general, where like they wouldn't build on the strengths of the first one. They would build on the weird, goofy sh**. And so the second It movie is about all the kids who dealt with this horrible monster, and they're now all grown up. But now they're grown up, and one of them's Bill Hader, and one of them's James McAvoy. And every other f***ing line is a, is like a joke, or like a punchline, or it has the rhythm of like a comedy movie, or a comedy trailer, not even a comedy movie. Like, it has the kind of like set-up punchline, like, structure of the writing. But what it doesn't have is comedy. <laughs> it's a fascinating watch as like I was talking about like like you know effective writing before. The writing in this film is astonishingly bad. The number of times it something vaguely weird happens and it cuts to like Bill Hader's bemused face as he then delivers a one-liner that is devoid of comedy whatsoever. But it's delivered with that kind of like movie trailer thing of like I'm just saying something wacky now. And then the horror will commence, and they'll actually pause the music for him to deliver his line, and then the music will start up again. It's it's a baffling ordeal of a film. <laughs> anyway, there was a scene in this movie that was potentially really terrifying, and it involved uh, an old lady, and you see the, this old lady played by an actual woman. The way she's performing the character is really scary. You know, something's up. And then she goes into a room, and then she comes out, and she's a f***ing Pixar monster. <laughs> like, she's morphed into this goofy, shitty, wall-eyed CG thing. It's about as scary as the Care Bears movie. <laughs> Although that did have some intense moments. Sorry, <laughs> trigger warning. I mean, that book, yeah, spooky. Uh, I'll pair that down. Basically, I just had my love and respect for practical effects and animation and the heyday, <laughs> I think, of a, of a certain golden era of cinema, particularly reinforced. And uh, I guess credit goes to It Chapter 2, <laughs> which alternate title should have just been It F***ing Sucks. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm completely with you. And, and I, I spoke recently with somebody about this. Uh, I don't know if you remember... The Will Smith film, I Am Legend. I saw it in the cinemas, uh, and I remember being really involved in it. I really thought it was... uh, I was intrigued as to what was going to happen. There's a lot of suspense built up before you meet the the monsters, I suppose you could call them, Mm. in the film. And I remember thinking, well, you know, these are going to be people. These are going to be... You know, this is this is the the true horror of this 
of this film is that these are these are people. What's happened to them? And something happens in the film. He, I don't know, he falls over and makes a noise or farts or something. And you know, one of the monsters turns around, and looks at him, and then in full early two thousands, we have enough CG to do this, but not not enough to make it look credible. Style. The monster opens his mouth and just keeps opening his mouth. I remember thinking, just it looks daft, yeah, but with a practical effect. I think even though you can tell that they're made out of rubber, even though you can tell that they're they're not quite real, when you look at something like the work that John Landis did in uh, American Werewolf uh, in London, that transformation scene, or stuff like The Fly, or stuff like, you know... Uh, the Thing. The Thing, the original Terminator. Mm. All these kind of practical effects, and we're going, cre- uh, you know, creatures here, uh, you know, movie monsters... They really put a lot of effort into those things, making those things work. Uh, your favourite horror franchise, the makeup in those things is absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hellraiser. Yeah, you couldn't really, you wouldn't get something that had that same effect. If you, you could quite easily create the character in CG, you know, save them a lot of hours and makeup, but you wouldn't get the quality of the sort of flesh oozing out of the open sores and stuff like that, that you just immediately identify as being real. Mm. Especially, you know, things that glisten and things that are wet. It's so hard to match up the lighting conditions and the kind of lens detail in a CG environment with a, um, you know, the live action footage. It just, it, people's brains on an intuitive level know something's up. Yeah. I think that maybe because it's become a retro thing, it's also perhaps coming back into fashion a little bit. I know people have been quite excited about the new Dark Crystal, which isn't very realistic, practical puppetry, but it's very charming, certainly if you liked the Dark Crystal. Mm. People seem to have been very gratified by that and relieved that they didn't do the obvious thing, which is make it in CG. Yes. I think I read somewhere that the new Ghostbusters is going to use puppets. That would be good, yeah. But then they've been talking about a new Ghostbusters for 20 years, so I don't even know if it's even going to happen. But that would be, because when they did the remake, the ghosts were all CG, and it's like, eh, all right. Like, I mean, I wasn't ever going to get that much out of that film anyway, but if there was one thing I would cite as being kind of disappointing... It wasn't the fact that they were all women. It was that they weren't puppets anymore, you know, <laughs> or people in costumes, you know. Yeah. The sort of naffness of it was very appealing, you know. Yeah. There, there's something to that, though, isn't there? What is it? What What is it that we react to in such a sort of favourable way? And I don't think it's upbringing, because otherwise you'd have people who are absolutely delighted with the idea of watching or re-watching uh, poor CGI, but people, I don't think it has that same hook as poorly done practical effects. I, I don't know if, uh, I know you used to do like a bad movie watching uh, regular uh, mm. thing. Did you ever get round to watching uh, Ricky O, The Story of Ricky? No. Oh my goodness. Now, if you want a film which is very practical effects led, but is also simultaneously the funniest film you've ever watched in your life and the worst film you've ever watched in your life. It's it's there. There it is. It's like, um, 
you know, Toxic Avenger level, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, fair. Just the sheer absurdity of it all. But it's there's a charm that's tangible, but I can't for the life of me pinpoint it. Mm. But then it's absolutely missing from CG or the worst type of CG. Like I say, I think it's it's operating on some kind of subconscious level, like some kind of primal recognition of what is and isn't real. And I think that sort of immediate understanding of, okay, actually, I'm, I'm being duped here. I'm taken out of it. Mm. Even something that we, in our intellectual part of our brain, we know, okay, that's a man in a suit, or that's a puppet, or that's, you know, a series of lubricants and, <laughs> you know, globs of melted rubber or whatever. Like, I think probably the most disquieting scene in Hellraiser, it's not the monsters, it's a scene of a guy reconstructing himself from nerves and veins and sinew and his bones of forming. And they do it with this series of, I think there's a bit of stop motion in there, but it's mostly, I think, reverse footage of things melting in reverse and, you know, dripping like lubricated tendrils as this guy's rib cage and lungs kind of form together. It's it's quite nauseating. Like I've seen that film 8 million times and I still wouldn't watch that scene while I'm having my tea, you know? <laughs> and yeah, you do that in CG, you quite happily have a f-ing bargain bucket in your lap. <laughs> Dip in the gravy. You're like, oh, that's all right. <laughs> yeah. Goo, I think. That's the, the thing we haven't cracked in animation. Goo. <laughs> goo. Yes, animated goo. There's a, there's a millionaire out there waiting to be made for the person who can crack that particular code um but there's something about uh, i think it, it goes back to the the sort of the work of ray harryhausen the work of james cameron's special early special effects and george lucas i suppose you know i know you're not the biggest star wars fan but you know there are certain moments in there where they use uh effects and stuff i, I don't know whether it's fair to say you're not the biggest star wars fan i probably it's probably you're not the biggest star wars fandom fan i think might be a unless you've seen the films you think are absolute dire which is fair enough i've seen it i've seen about four of them at this point and two of them weren't very good if i'm honest Mm. the one i liked was one of the old ones and i remember a scene where a guy had to like slice open a kind of star yak to keep warm and (laughs) sleep in his insides and that was really gross and you know again that was it was gross because it was real fake guts yeah (laughs) oh this will be safe what's the official title of the space yak uh oh my god uh, I, I like I like Space Yak. We're just going to go with Space Yak. Um, <laughs> but uh, I know that people are shouting the real answer at there. I would have been twelve when I saw it because it was the <laughs> cinema re-release. Oh right, yes, the- yeah. It, again, that was a re-release where they put loads of CG in it. All right, they beefed up the CG for that one. But it's, you know, thankfully, some of these films have been saved from that kind of treatment. Is uh, Ray Harryhausen? I mean, for uh, and. Films have been cleaned up, they've been uh, restored, you know, they've been uh, looked after, but they haven't been uh, tinkered with in terms of CG, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, One of the things I've been doing recently is 3D scanning uh, puppets, and some of them from the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, including one of the skeletons from Seventh Voyage of Sinbad and Jason and the Argonauts, as well as the Kraken from... Uh, Clash of the Titans and the biggest question we always get asked from doing work like that 
uh, which we are doing for archival purposes, just to save an, an image of the of, of the puppet, uh, is are you going to reanimate it? It's called the Reanimate Project, silly name. But <laughs> are you going to actually animate that thing? Is that something that you're going to have move around? Is that something that you're going to have, you know, 3D print so we can all have merchandise, all that type of stuff? And the answer is no, because, you know, who the heck would you be to animate Ray Harryhausen's puppets? Mm. You've got to give it to the man himself who built these things in his back garden. and uh, It's a back garden in his own house, you know, in his kitchen. Uh, or, or you know, in his shed, or uh, uh, and crafted these things to make them look like, you know, a million dollars up on the screen. You know, you can't just click a few buttons and expect that same magic to uh, to come through on screen. There was a real beyond like the animation, the the way it was so well combined with the craft of the films themselves was so striking. I remember fully kind of appreciating the sort of length and breadth of Harry Elson's work, and this will come as no surprise, was Barry Purvis, who was in a, the last episode of this podcast, uh, obviously very big on stop motion and that whole world, and he was doing a presentation on, if not Harry Housen, I think the kind of titans of stop motion that you know he had the most admiration for. And he was showing us a f- scene to begin, like some of the old stuff, but there was the scene from... Um, Jason and the Argonauts, I think. The big bronze giant statue that comes to life. Yes. Tell us. Tell us. And No, you tell us. (laughs) 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 I was about 23, I guess, when I saw this talk by Barry. And this creeped me the f*** out. <laughs> like, I, it would have been a long... The last film that I think that scared me was probably Mulholland Drive, like, three years before. I was pretty much desensitized to, like, horror. And it's not a horror movie, really, but the, there's something so horrific about the way the shots are framed and just how this puppet towers over these people and is going to f*** them up. <laughs> and it's like I wouldn't want to piss off that puppet. <laughs> yes. Know? Yeah. Yeah. The frame rate, the sort of juddery movement, all of that kind of stuff goes out the window, and it's full suspension of disbelief that it's such old film stock that you know the acting is a bit kind of campy. There's just something very claustrophobic and fundamentally nightmarish about this big shiny thing is going to f-ing stomp you. Yeah, and then when you see it in real life, where it was in the National Media Museum for years. And see that it's forty centimeters high, if that. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's just stood there. Again, it's just down to that impressive craft. You know, the idea that you can take something like uh, just bits of rubber and wire and craft them into something that will absolutely make people terrified. You know, it feels like the biggest thing in the world looking down on you, especially when you see it on the big screen. Mm. But it's not. It's you know, uh, it's. It's magic, you know, that's what it is. Well, I think we kind of uh, brought things back to a cheerier note. We certainly did, yes. Before we jinx it, shall we uh, Shall we go to the interview? Yes. Uh, so, yeah, so this is uh, John Walsh from the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, uh, an archives manager, Connor Heaney, uh, talking about Harryhausen 100, uh, the events that are going to be going on to celebrate 100 years of Ray Harryhausen, and Harryhausen The Lost Movies, which is John's new book, uh, which is out now. Brilliant stuff. 
I'm here with uh, filmmaker John Walsh and uh, Ray and Diana Harryhausen uh, archivist uh, Connor Heaney. Uh, just for the for the sake of people knowing who's who's got what accent, would you like to introduce yourselves? Right. Well, I'm John Walsh. I'm also a trustee of the Ray Harryhausen Foundation. And I'm Connor Heaney, and I'm yeah, I'm the collections manager for the foundation. Fantastic. We wanted to get you guys on the podcast for a good long while. What better excuse than the 100th anniversary of uh, Ray Harryhausen's birth. It must be an exciting year for you guys. It is. I mean, I think because there's so much to prep, I suppose it's like a giant wedding, isn't it? You can't really enjoy it until the day. So there's so much yet to be done. Um, I think I'm quite anxious and we're hoping that next year's centenary will be a big event because we'll have to wait a long time for the next one. Mm. Yeah, June 29th, 2020 is the date to mark in your calendar and we will have celebrations uh, worldwide and specifically in the UK to, to mark Ray's 100th birthday. Um, we're holding a huge exhibition at the National Galleries in Edinburgh where we're going to have as much of Ray's vast collection on display as possible. So that's an, an exciting uh, few months to mark for, for Harry Housen fans everywhere. Between May and October 2020 uh, is the time to come and see that. So we're doing a, a lot of uh, very exciting projects over the next year, and uh, yeah, we've got a busy but but very fun schedule ahead. So when we started the podcast back in 2012, I think, I went and visited the National Media Museum where there was a, a Ray Harryhausen exhibition, which was absolutely wonderful. Uh, I thought it was spectacular seeing everything on display, but this, I'm right in saying, is the biggest and widest ranging uh, exhibition to date that there's ever been on Ray's work. Yes, that's right. I mean, I think when people think they've seen everything, they've seen lots, but they haven't seen everything. Um, there's work that wasn't revealed because they were from his Lost Films projects. There's new things uncovered all the time. And Vanessa Harryhausen has her own private collection, which she's revealing for the very first time. So for people who think they've seen it all in the past, a bit like the, uh, the trail for Superman 2, if you've seen the first one, you haven't seen the best one. So you do need to see this all-encompassing event next year to uh, feel fully fulfilled. Fantastic. You mentioned Lost Films there, John. Uh, you've been working on a project uh, involving the, the Lost Films of Ray Harryhausen. Now, um, how many films has Ray got uh, released today as a, as, a, as a number? Is it, did you say it was 16, 16 feature films? Feature films yeah. uh, and legions of fans. And unfortunately, Ray's not here anymore, so we're not going to be uh, uh, seeing many more films from Ray himself. But to hear that there may be some lost films, one or two, would be exciting. But, I mean, what what's the book uh, uncovered? Well, Harryhausen, The Lost Films, which is published by Titan Books on the 10th of September, um, looks at the films that Ray planned to make but didn't. It looks at scenes cut from his own films and also looks at the films he turned down because, of course, it gives an outside perspective on how people viewed Ray. You know, when you know those films you scratch your head and you think, well, wow, what would Ray have done in that scenario with that picture? And they are vast and varied. You know, there was a time when if you didn't have your creature created by Ray Harryhausen, you were putting a man in a rubber suit. So he really did, in some ways, have a monopoly on the, uh, on the creature on cinema in stop motion. I mean, there were other animators, but nobody did it to the level and quality of Ray Harryhausen. So it's been a real education. I thought there was you know, 40 to 50 lost films that qualify under that category. Um, it was closer to 80. Wow. Um, so what was going to be a 16,000-word book ended up as a 37,000-word book, with artworks being found all the time. 
um, detective work being done through letters and correspondence and and pieces of uh, information that hadn't been correctly um, marked up because they weren't final productions and test footage and models and moulds and all the paraphernalia one might expect so unlike perhaps a uh, a film from a, a well-known director whether it's say Stanley Kubrick or um, Alfred Hitchcock you might expect to find some papers and maybe a few photographs but because Ray Harryhausen was such a craftsman then there are so many more visual treats to reveal in the book about his lost projects mm. and and in some ways it's inspiring to see that creativity but in other ways it's very sad to see what could have been and, and never will be yeah I suppose that takes us back to the idea of animation production and animation production materials being as they are such a beautiful part of the process and I suppose your job Connor as as archivist uh, you come in contact with this stuff on a day by day basis you must be like a kid in a sweet shop working as an animation archivist maybe you could tell us a little bit about that yeah, well, you, you do have to be very focused because there are so many rabbit holes that you could go down of fascinating topics. And when I was assisting John with his, uh, his Lost Films book, there, there's all this wonderful, not just uh, drawings and designs, but uh, pieces of correspondence going backwards and forwards and so many fascinating pieces of research which, which haven't been seen before. I mean, this is part of the ongoing cataloguing of the collection where we have all of Ray's documentation, behind the scenes photographs. Uh, people may be interested to know that Ray kept every piece of fan mail that he ever received. So we have like a filing cabinet full of fan mail, which again is part of our ongoing cataloging project to, to have all of this fan mail um, sorted by, by year and, and by, by person, because it meant a lot to Ray that people would take the time to write to him and he, he would always respond where he could. So we have this vast collection consisting of everything from the models that everybody knows through to prototypes, tools, Equipment, um, you know, workshop materials, uh, Ray's moulds, the moulds for, for all of the models, and Ray's personal collection, his library. I think we've got 2,000 books in the collection uh, of Ray's library, all of his reference books, um, his personal laser disc collection. All of these different aspects of Ray's career are, are held within our collection. And what we're doing is building a database which does more than just lists. Um, object names and sizes. We're, we're feeding this on to um, a database named AdLib which links information together so you can get a real history of each object and where it fits in within the wider context of Ray's life and creative career. We're as close to the man as you can get really but I mean you talked there a little bit about fan mail. Have you managed to find uh, anything from a young John Walsh? We have, yes. We yeah. have uh, John's very earliest uh, letters to Ray. We do have uh, a young filmmaker named John Walsh in the 1980s who, yeah. uh, who wrote Ray several letters. Maybe John can, can tell a yeah, little bit from his side. Of for those that don't know, you've got a very long uh, history with Ray. You were, were 18 years old when you first when you first got in touch with him. Maybe we could tell a little bit about that story and, and about, about Ray himself, knowing Ray. Well, I was a student at the London Film School in the late 1980s and I was making a documentary as part of my third term. And I was fascinated by the films and working practices of Ray Harryhausen. I'd heard that he lived in London. I'd heard that perhaps he had some of the creatures or all of them in his house, but I didn't know. And there was no way of checking. There was no internet, of course. And so I opened up the London telephone directory, and he was the only R. Harryhausen listed. Um, so I picked up the phone and rang him. He answered. I explained to him who I was and what I wanted to do. And quite generously, he said, come to the house and we'll have a talk about it. So went to his lovely house, a very large house in Holland Park, um, in Ilchester Place, 
and he had effectively the creatures from all of his films or most of his films there in the house so we got talking about what I wanted to do and what I'd like to see and as a fanboy what I was always fascinated was was the hands-on animation techniques in front of the camera because Ray never allowed or had time for filming behind the scenes and often filming behind the scenes would concentrate on who the main players were the actors and actresses and so on and the settings of the film but so I wanted to see Ray with his hands on the creatures moving them increments at a time taking a picture and so on so we decided to recreate that with one of the best known creatures from his last film Clash of the Titans and the fully articulated Kraken was chosen for my documentary and I shot the film on 16mm it's about 15 minutes long and it shows Ray manipulating the Kraken and talking about his techniques and so on and it was ultimately narrated by Tom Baker who got his start as Doctor Who through um, Golden Voyage Sinbad who was cast directly because of that so I kept in touch with Ray over the years um, told him when I had television shows on I had a couple of films in the cinema and we always kept in touch and in, in more recent years I recorded commentaries with Ray for the films that he didn't record commentaries for which were sort of 80% of them we worked from Clash of the Titans backwards and ultimately Ray asked me to become a trustee of his foundation which he set up in the mid-1980s so I've had the privilege and honour now of working with the foundation for some time working closely with the collection and, and giving a, a sort of a different perspective because I'm not an animator I've employed and commissioned animators for my films but as a programme producer and director I sort of bring talented skills together and I tried a bit of claymation in my Super 8 days um, but decided that uh, my best task was in directing and producing. So I've, I've done that now for a few years and it brings us here today to a book, the foundation, the centenary and being effectively one of the guardians of one of the most significant collections really in cinema history. Now, Ray's very very deservingly revered by, by legions of fans as we said but we've had conversations over the last couple of days uh, John about what Ray thought about when you asked him to do the commentaries and, and, and quite a, although he did set up his own foundation to, to, to look after his own work he found it quite fascinating the fact that anyone would be interested or indeed bothered by, by his process can you tell us a little bit about the man himself well I said to him why is there not being a commentary record say for example to Clash of the Tysons which was his largest film by every measure, largest budget, most animations, and so on and so on. And he said to me, oh, I don't think anyone would want to hear what I had to say. Rather cheekily there, doing my Ray Harryhausen impression. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, well, why is that? Well, you know, there's been books, he said, and there's been magazines and so on. And he said, I don't think I'd have much to remember or to add. And I thought, well, we'll give it a go, and we'll, we'll record this in your house using top-quality recording equipment. And, of course, the minute the film started... It was a form of regression therapy. It would be the same for all of us. If I was to show you an old school report, you might remember something else that happened at school as a result. And so, so Ray started to remember different anecdotes about the film and the filmmaking processes and so on. And though we went on to record commentaries for, for most of his films that didn't have them. Uh, sadly, as we got to the last film, which was Ray's first, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, he, he unfortunately passed away. But what we have got now is as a a really worthwhile oral history which we hope to license some of these commentaries to uh, re-releases of Ray's films and it gave us a, a, a foundation for our podcast series which has been running now for a few years and we released clips of Ray talking in those podcasts but it just goes to show that it's never too late to start collating information be it oral histories be it the work that Connor's doing at the foundation collating documents 
for the Lost Films project, things were scattered because they were in no formal order because they didn't have the structure of a final film around them and, and the sort of the legal compliance that's involved with that. Mm. So each time we do a new project, be it Centenary, be it Lost Films or the poster book last year, it helps put our house in order in that area. So it's great, it's been a real opportunity to finally get a handle on what are Ray Harryhausen's lost movies. Mm. Uh, Ray was very prolific, Connor, so the archive must be quite well stocked. Yes, well we have an estimated 50,000 items within the archive. Um, currently held within our database we have about 15,000 or so um, recorded items but you know there's plenty more where that came from and there's secrets in every corner of, of the archive. Um, to give an example, one day I set about what I thought would be the rather prosaic task of searching for potentially flammable objects within Ray's workshop materials and I asked Vanessa to come and help me with that, Vanessa Harryhausen, Ray's daughter, and our conservator Alan Friswell to give his sort of view on, on what materials are potentially dangerous. By the end of the day we had found uh, the foot of the Emir from 20 million miles to Earth, uh, a rubber snake from Medusa's hair, uh, the mould for the walrus from Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, a prototype skeleton, um, just all of this wonderful, oh yeah, and sorry, Trog's horn, so, so Trog from Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger doesn't exist anymore, but we found his horn, which is all that remains from the model from that film. All in this one box? Well, this was all in um, like boxes of screws and things. So Ray had his filing cabinets and boxes of boxes of eyeballs you pull out, and there'd be little doll's eyes that he'd use for his models. And uh, you know, going through this, we, we kept finding all these little bits and pieces. So by the end of the day, we had this little collection of of uh, lost secrets, really, um, that that we could identify as being specifically from from one film or another. And that's just an example of of the secrets that are. Uh, around every corner. Um, sometimes if you look at a key drawing and it's magnificent, we also have to look at the back too because there'll be a sketch or, or an idea or just something that was in Ray's mind at the time during his filmmaking progress, uh, filmmaking process. And um, that, that is uh, really what's so fabulous about the archive because there's so much more to learn and it's a, a real joy to work through that and catalogue it so that in 10 years, 20 years, people will still be able to uh, enjoy and learn from Ray Harryhausen's creations. Fantastic. What's coming up? For the uh, for the foundation uh, and for the the future. Well, we've got some talks to do at festivals. We're going to be at uh, San Diego Comic Con this year, and uh, we've got lots really planned, haven't we, Connor? We have the book, of course, and there's lots. lots yeah. Out. So, so John's book, Ray Harryhausen, The Lost Movies, is is due for release through Titan Books in September, and all of this is leading up to Ray Centenary, where we're going to host a massive exhibition at the National Gallery of Modern Art in Edinburgh. So that runs from May till October 2020 and uh, as I mentioned it's going to be it's going to be incredible because of all this new material we're finding because of the biographical aspect too with Vanessa's involvement where she's able to to cast a bit more light on uh, on her father's personal life and his, his you know his uh, his role as a family man. Uh, so Vanessa will actually be writing the the exhibition publication so the the catalog for, for uh, our exhibition will be from Vanessa's perspective because she grew up in this house. She grew up and uh, Guanji was a toy that she got to play with and she had the alligator from the Three Worlds of Gulliver in her playroom and she was on the set of uh, you know all of her dad's films that, that were released after she was born. So she has this unique perspective and that I think is important because people might know the films, they might know the models, but the man behind the, the movies too and, and his... Um, 
his approach to cataloguing and keeping this collection is important too because without Ray's foresight there would be no collection for us to enjoy and I think that's an important part too. We're, we're going to be celebrating the films but we're also going to be celebrating a hundred years of, of Ray and uh, the influence that he's had on the world. Fantastic. Uh, if people want to hear more uh, from yourselves you've got a podcast as well. Yes we do. It's the Ray Harryhausen podcast which is on SoundCloud and iTunes and they can log on to Facebook, Twitter and Instagram find us with the various blue ticks around fantastic well uh, John and Connor thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today thanks Steve thank Brilliant. you so we got uh, I gather we've got a little treat uh, from the foundation to Squiggly listeners now that's right um, here come some exclusive clips of Ray Harryhausen culled from our various commentaries exclusively here for your listeners design that in took a, the seventh voyage I made uh, eight big drawings and uh, took them around Hollywood, and I couldn't get anybody interested. I even took them to Edward Small, and I couldn't get past the secretary. <laughs> and I left the drawings there for a week and then picked them up later. But uh, finally we were looking for a project when I, after I'd done several films with uh, Charles Schneer, and uh, he got very excited when he saw the drawings. Skeleton on the, was very original at the time. I always wanted to learn to do work with the sword. So I took, I went to the Falconer's school on Hollywood Boulevard where he teaches Earl Flynn and all the other great big actors to use the sword correctly. Basil Rathbone. But I learned enough, just enough to make the skeleton look convincing when he was dueling with Sinbad. Yes, I did an outline, and I wanted to take it from the point of view of the fantasy elements of Sinbad stories. And uh, all the Sinbad pictures that had been made earlier just showed the point of view from the, the uh, Sinbad side. And it usually turned out to be a girly show. <laughs> I know at the time, uh, Howard Hughes was making a film called uh, The Son of Sinbad, and uh, he had... Uh, I think he'd get the fan dancer on off of the main street to, to be in the picture. And Sinbad has kept talking about the Cyclops, and, and they never showed them on the screen. So I, I wanted to take it from the point of view that uh, you would see this on the screen, uh, from the point of view of the fantasy elements and Sinbad stories. Well, I had worked in color for the fairy tales and many other films, but... Uh, in color, but uh, color takes longer in the feature film than uh, because you have to wait. You can't make tests. You have to wait for them to come back the next day because I wasn't equipped to uh, to develop the tests for uh, color. So the backgrounds would be more grainy than the, the foreground. So I had always put the foreground out a little out of focus. Of course, uh, with the Blu-ray coming in next, many years later, uh, <laughs> you see the backgrounds are very sharp, and which is a marvel. There was only one kind of film, and uh, there would be a big difference between the projected image and the actual original image that was photographed in the live act. Special thanks there to John Walsh and Connor Heaney talking all things Harryhausen 100. And if you're interested in following the escapades of uh, and celebrations of uh, the 100th anniversary of Ray Harryhausen's birth, 
you can go to the website, which is harryhausen100.com. Tremendous. I think that's all for this episode of the Squiggly Animation Podcast. Any pluggables? Well, I would tell people to keep their eyes open on Manchester Animation Festival. The programme is getting launched on the 23rd of September. So uh, I'll probably rant and rave about that in the next podcast, shall we say. But tickets will go on sale. We'll reveal who wants to, who's going to be a volunteer. We'll reveal who the guests are. We're going to... Yeah, it's going to be a whole heap of fun. So 23rd of September, we're launching the Animation Festival. Brilliant stuff. And of course, this week coming up is the Encounters Festival here in Bristol which features our guest Lauren Orm's film Creepy Pasta Salad in the screening Her Story at noon on Thursday, September 26th, as well as a recent intimate animation podcast guest Caitlin McCarthy, whose film Cold Saw plays in the Late Lounge that same day at 10pm. Another film worth flagging is Mind My Mind by Floor Adams, who will be joining us in the next episode of Intimate Animation. That'll go up very shortly, so keep an eye out. The film will be part of the screening Get Real a little earlier in the evening at 6pm. Of course, there's a wealth of other films spread out throughout the week, and I'll be leading the filmmaker Q&As after each of the main competition programmes at 1.30pm and 7.30pm Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. So come check those out. You can meet the filmmakers and ask them stuff in person, should you so desire. Should be fun. All the main events will be taking place at the Watershed in Bristol, I also note they're playing Twin Peaks Firewalk with me up at Boiling Wells, which has nothing to do with Squiggly, by the way. It's just one of the best movies ever made. So check out the full festival itinerary at encounters.film. Looking forward to seeing some of you there. One final brief nugget of news from me. My film Sunscapade is getting its Swedish premiere at the Lund Fantastic Film Festival. This will be in the program An Animated Cocktail at 1.30pm, September 29th. It'll be playing alongside some brilliant films, including Animantzaris' Good Intentions, another film with our pal Phil Brooks doing the music. He's everywhere! Looks like a fun festival. I also note they're playing Hellraiser, a film we brought up earlier this episode. That also has nothing to do with Squiggly, and it's also one of the best movies ever made. Not subjective opinion there, my friends. A mathematically provable fact. You can check out the festival at fff.se. Thanks again for joining us, and thank you to all our lovely guests for talking about their work. You can follow us on Twitter at Squiggly. I'm at Ben L. Mitchell, and Steve is at Mr. Underscore S. Underscore Henderson. The website, of course, is squiggly.com. Instagram, we're at Squiggly Animation, and Facebook.com slash Squiggly Magazine. Please like us and follow us and do all of the things to us. We deserve it. Validators. Until next time, it's been a pleasure. Sorry for yelling. 